giving us your word, for telling us the things that are on your heart, your mind, that we can know you and know your ways. And we pray that as we um, look into your word and look into this account that you gave to us of Nehemiah and of the rebuilding of the wall, that we would have an understanding of what you're doing in our lives, that we would be encouraged by you and strengthened by you. And, and by your Holy Spirit, we pray that we might um, really be able to listen to the things that you particularly are speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been looking at the, the uh, account of Nehemiah, and the question that I always have when I look at Nehemiah is, what can one person do? And I think that this happens to a lot of us. We, we see it in a, a really great story of victory, and we see what one hero can do, but then when we look at our own lives, we don't see the connection. We don't really, most of us anyway, don't picture ourselves as being a hero or as being one of these warrior types or one of these people that just, you know, charges forward and conquers the world. And so we think, um, you know, those people do that, but not me. I'm just one of the, the many who are not like that. And um, I want us to ask the question of ourselves, what can I do? Is one person significant in God's eyes? Does it matter this one person, you that one person, and what God has called you to do? Can you make a difference? Is your life significant? Does it count? Or are we going to be, as Solomon was at the end of his life, meaningless or vanity? And so we're going to look at um, Nehemiah and hopefully be encouraged by that. <clears throat> Viggo Olson, I don't know if you know that, Jack and Wendy might know Viggo Olson. He was a missionary in Bangladesh. So in 1972, he's a doctor, he was called Doctar, he wrote the book Doctar, and uh, he's, uh, he was a medical missionary to Bangladesh in all of that civil strife that they were having. And the people of Bangladesh, I remember studying this in economics, way back in the 70s, and uh, Bangladesh was held up as being the country that needed help, like they were in trouble. And it precipitated at the universities all of these um, movements toward helping these helpless countries. And Bangladesh was in that kind of a state from the Civil War, and the people were decimated. They were um, without food, there was famine, they didn't have homes, their shelters were destroyed. And uh, this Viggo Olson went over, um, he was reading actually in this chapter, Nehemiah 3, which is all about wall assignments and is considered to be one of the more boring chapters of scripture. But he, in reading it, was incredibly inspired by it. And he realized, yes, one person can make a difference. And he was responsible to overseeing the rebuilding of 10,000 homes in Bangladesh. That was not his mission. His mission was to be a doctor there, which he did do. But he also was instrumental in the rebuilding of people's homes there in Bangladesh. 10,000 homes. Can one person who wasn't really expecting to do that extraordinary thing, do it? Yes, but we 
man, we do ordinary things. Our days are occupied with the ordinary. But you know what? The Lord takes the very ordinary, and when he enters in, what's ordinary for us becomes extraordinary in his hand. And so extraordinary things were done through that man. Psalm 89 is uh, written by Ethan the Ezraite. I'm just going to go down. Um, here we go. In Psalm 89, <clears throat> Ethan is an Ezraite. Where do you think the name Ezraite comes from? Ezra. Right. So this is going to be basically a contemporary of these days that we're studying right now in Nehemiah. And his brother um, wrote the psalm right prior to this, Psalm 88. Um, his Heman wrote it, and he's also an Ezraite. So Ezra had set up a school of scribes that were going to be faithful to the Lord, really know the scriptures, because essentially the scripture it's not just that they were moved out of Jerusalem, that they were moved into Babylon and then into Persia. It's actually the loss of the word of God during that time. Not, not that it was completely gone, but people forgot about it. They didn't know it. They were not aware of it. It wasn't read to them on a regular basis. And so Ezra really started up the whole movement of establishing teachers of the word again. And so these um, two brothers were Ezraites. And uh, they also experienced the decimation of, that, of those walls. They saw that the walls were destroyed. And um, in their day, when Ethan wrote this, I'm just going to read some of it. It's a long psalm, and I just want to read some of it, starting at verse 38. So remember, he's experiencing these um, broken-down walls. And he says, But thou hast cast off and rejected. Thou, meaning God, hast been full of wrath against thine anointed, meaning Israel. Thou hast spurned the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown in the dust. Thou hast broken down all his walls. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. So he's talking to God this way. This is not sort of your normal feel-good kind of psalm. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become, meaning Jerusalem, a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast exalted the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all his enemies rejoice. Thou dost turn back the edge of his sword and hast not made him stand in battle. Thou hast made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. Thou hast shortened the days of his youth. Thou hast covered him with shame. And so as... as um, Ethan sees these walls. This is Jerusalem that he's speaking of, that it's covered with shame, that it's decimated. The enemies rejoice over the defeat of Jerusalem, which has been to them a thorn in the flesh. And they're glad to see Jerusalem decimated like this. They're glad to see those walls down. They're glad to see that Jerusalem is a no-name now amongst the nations. And Ethan mourns over this. He says, you have spurned the covenant. You have forgotten what it is that you were doing here. And so um, it's a time of great demoralization of the people of Israel. 
to see their great city so ruined and where God's name had been placed in that city now ruined. And so it's not just the city that's ruined, it's God's name. And I just, I want to explain, we, we talk about Jerusalem a lot. And I think that sometimes we think, oh, well, Jerusalem, you know, Israel, it's just over there. It's a problem that's not our problem, but it is our problem. And I've said it before, and I've said it many times, and we've all said it, it's not just me, that Jerusalem is the only city on earth where God has placed his name. And he talks with words like forever, everlasting, that his name will always be on Jerusalem. This is not just for ancient history. This is now, and more than now, it's in the future. It's in the future. It's not over for Jerusalem. God is going to do something big in the city of Jerusalem yet to come. So much so that he puts the name Zion on Jerusalem. And Zion is always his word for the millennial kingdom, for the kingdom that he is bringing to earth. And so Jerusalem remains for us always something that's on our mind. There's so much scripture about Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is always a picture for us, not just of a place, but the place where Jesus is going to set up his millennial reign and rule from over all the earth. And so Jerusalem is really connected to Jesus, not just Jesus who came and died on the cross, but Jesus who is returning as king of kings. That's why Jerusalem remains so key in the scriptures and so key in our thinking and understanding. So this whole psalm is actually a messianic psalm. If you notice, sometimes it says he, and you think, I thought we were talking about Jerusalem, and usually cities are referred to as her. And so what happens when we move to he? And it's because it is about Jerusalem, it is about the broken walls, but it's also about Jesus and the brokenness of Jesus at the cross. And it's all about, it's all looking forward to the fact that Jesus was yet to come. The Messiah was yet to come, and so we call it a messianic psalm. Look at verses 30 to 37. If his sons forsake my law, this is what God had said beforehand, and he is saying, what's going to happen if Israel turns away from God? If his sons, meaning Israel's sons, forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. That explains why Jerusalem's in such a mess. It's not because the enemies are strong. It's because the Lord allowed it. In fact, the Lord orchestrated it. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him. And that word loving kindness is his covenant word, kasad, and it means his mercy. I will not break off my mercy from Israel, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. In other words, even if we don't remain faithful, the Lord does. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. He, he promised David that he would have forever a descendant of his on the throne. And so he says, I will not lie to David. 
His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And so um, he says that, God says that even if Israel turns away, yes, I will discipline him, but I will not cut him off from my covenant. And so um, if you turn to verse 52, which it ends. So Ethan's been um, full of this morning that this is what's happened and the walls are broken down. But he ends off the psalm by saying, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Even though he doesn't really come into resolution in the psalm, he still ends it. He's, he's still mourning, but he ends it, blessed be the Lord. Do you know that when Job went through all of his troubles, he lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost all of his herds and flocks, he lost his health, he lost essentially everything. And at the end of all that, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we say that when we're at the bottom? Job did, Ethan did, Nehemiah did, every one of them did, even at the bottom, and Jesus also did. Even on the cross, he blessed the name of the Father. And so faith is when we move from what is devastated and in the midst of that devastation to be able to say, Blessed be the name. I trust you, Lord. I don't know how you're going to work this out. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust. That is blessing the name of the Lord. That's faith. That's faith when we have nothing else and still can say that. So maybe we're in that broken state. Maybe your life is in a place where you feel like it's gone. I don't have any hope. Where I'm at is a devastating point. And in the midst of it, I don't feel good. I'm not happy. I'm filled with sorrow or grief or confliction or whatever it is. All of it. If we can say, but in spite of all this, blessed be the name of the Lord, that's faith. That's faith. And so I hope that you are encouraged today that even in the midst, to be able to say that, just like Nehemiah did, and then saw the great works of the Lord even after. So Nehemiah chapter, if you flip back to Nehemiah, going backwards from Psalms, to chapter 2, verse 20, <coughs> we see that Nehemiah, we left off Nehemiah a couple of weeks ago with, um, you know, he had been, some of these guys like Sanballat and such had been against him, and he answered them and said to them, the God of heaven, Elohim, will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Remember, he's just been around the wall at night. He's looked at it. He's taken his um, mount, his donkey or, or horse or whatever. He's ridden around. He couldn't even get along the um, southeastern wall because it's such a mess. And he looked at the devastation. And he didn't even bother going up in the north end because that's completely gone. 
like it, it looks like there was a little bit of um, stonework left in the southern part, but he's looking at this, and it's this huge wall, and he's one man, and he says to these guys, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise. This is all future tense. We will arise and build. We're called to prayer. We're, we have a huge effort going on in our church right now teaching us how to pray strategically. Do we also have the confidence that God is going to do something amazing here? He is going to use every single person who's engaged in this battle, every single one is important. And he will use each one. This is not something that's just these few people that seem to have a vision. God is calling all of us to be a part of it. And then he says, but you, speaking to these other guys, will have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Like you're not part of this kingdom. And you will not have any part of it. You will have no remembrance here. So that's where we left off. And we're looking at these walls of Jerusalem that are in shambles. They're a shame. They are disgraced. The people are demoralized. And that's the great city. It's like a laughingstock. That's what happens because it's right on the highway, the King's Highway. And the people, as they go by and as they um, go into that area, going north and south, north and south, north and south, it's a big trade route area. And going also to the coast because they... Um, you know, it's a, it's a port area as well, not Jerusalem itself, but that whole area. And so as they, people go by, they go, that's the great city of Jerusalem. That's the one that we heard about that David built, that's been built over these years, that's been such a fortress. It's like a rubble heap. There's nothing there. And they talk about their great God. He's not so great the God of the Philistines. Now, he's great because the Philistines can easily wipe them out and have their place, and these guys are nothing. And so it was left as a laughing stock. And I wonder if sometimes we feel like a laughing stock, maybe as just individually. Maybe you've done something that you feel like everybody's judging you. And you feel like if they knew this story they wouldn't just come up and talk to me at the coffee time. If they knew this about me, I just, I can't tell anyone. I'm so ashamed. Or maybe we're in the midst of it. Or worse, maybe we're one of the people who does the bully laugh. The Lord says there is hope. But you know what? Sometimes I feel like it's not just us individually as a church. Sometimes I feel like we're like a laughingstock in North America. And when our leaders do scandalous things, we're demoralized by that. And we agree, yes, that was terrible. What do we have to offer? This is what our leaders do? But they are few. And God is working in his people and we are not to be a laughing stock. And we are not to think of ourselves as demoralized. God is doing his work through even this church in North America, which we all know is not in the best state. 
just like Jerusalem was not in the best state then either. But God will do his work. If we who are his people gather together, call on his name, repent of our past, and turn to him, and know that he will do these great deeds through us, because that is always how he chooses to work. He works through his people, and that's us. So let's look at chapter 3. And like uh, Ethan in the Psalm 89, he says, How long, O Lord, how long will it be? Just like the um, martyrs in Revelation that cried out from under the altar, How long, O Lord? How long before justice comes? How long before you move in your church? How long before you rescue me in my life? How long will it be? And the Lord um, answers, and he shows us. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. So I just want to look at that. Um, if you can see that, I, even up this close, I need my glasses. But um, the sheep gate is where on this? North, south, east, west. Where is it? North. Yeah, do you see it up at the north? I don't. Hang on. There it is. Okay. What comes in by the sheep gate? Sheep. Well done. Exactly. So sheep are going to come in by the sheep gate. And where are the sheep mostly taken to? Why there? Going to the temple for what? Sacrifice, right. So the flocks were, you know, held there. But it's, it's not only for that reason that we start there. It's actually, this is the part of the wall that is mostly attacked. Because remember, I've, I've shown us before how they can't just cross the desert, all their enemies from um, Babylon and Assyria and so on. They've got to go all the way up past the Euphrates and then come down from the north. And so that's why the north is, you know, the first line of where they attack. And it would seem that in the days of Nehemiah, this is the part that's completely gone. Like these, this part of the walls are completely gone. But it's, it's not just that. It's the temple. The temple is there. And the temple is the center of worship. In your life... We have a throne in our heart. And the question is, who or what is on that throne? It should be God. But more often than not, it's me. Or maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something that I just can't leave off. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's a great distress that I'm going through, and it's got my full attention, and that's all I think about. And that throne is where our focus goes. And the Lord says that he is to be on our throne, that our focus is to be on him, that he's to occupy our thoughts. Not all these other things that go on. So if you're experiencing any of those things, addictions, anger, maybe abuse, that you can't let go of that 
of what's happened to you, maybe there's violence, any of those things, if they're on the throne, then God will not be able to do his work through you. He will give attention to this throne room first. That's first and foremost in God's plan for us. And so to think about that and to think about what is on my throne, what's, what's in my temple, where is my focus, what do I worship? And worship is where we you know, put our focus, where we put our value. And so what is there? And so the Lord says, um, he starts them at the sheep gate, right close to the temple. And it says uh, the high priest and the priests with him, they consecrated it. In other words, they set it apart. This is a time where they especially are going to be um, saying, this is all the Lord's work. So when they consecrate the first place, they consecrate the whole thing. That's why we don't see it throughout, you know, the building of the wall as we work our way through the chapter, is because the first fruit is always consecrated to the Lord. That's why we give the Lord in our offering. The first of what we get goes to the Lord, not the leftovers, but the first of our paycheck. It goes to the Lord, always. The first of everything. We see it throughout Scripture, and Jesus Christ in the brokenness of the cross, it did not end in the grave, but instead the first fruits were resurrected. He is the first fruits. He is the first to be resurrected bodily and stay resurrected from the dead in his resurrected body. There were others that were raised from the dead, but not with a resurrected body. And so um, we start with the first, and it's consecrated. And so they consecrated it and hung its doors, like those big massive gates, like these are not sort of like our living room doors and, or our house doors or even these doors that are our front doors. These are massive, huge wooden gates that they would have up that would be closed at nighttime so that, you know, marauders can't get in. And then they would be opened in the day, um, some of them, to let people in and out. So those doors were consecrated. And they consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. So we're going counterclockwise is the way that we're going to go. And the priests did that. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And so they're put together as we work our way around. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. But as we work our way around, we're going to see that there's different people groups. So the priests did the sheep gate because that's the proximity. And as we work our way around, we're going to see that. Now the sons of Hassanah, that's a place, that's not a person. So those people built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Now you're wondering why this is considered a fairly boring chapter of scripture? <laughs> but each of those names actually are significant. Like if, if we had the time, I could take you to a lot of them and say, here's where else they came from in scripture. This is where else it's recorded. Or this was their father. Like they're all people who are just ordinary people, but who the Lord says, you count. And do you know what? You're an ordinary person and so am I. 
But you know what the Lord says? You count. You matter. You're part of the kingdom. You're part of the kingdom work. And it matters that all hands are on deck. That's really the picture that we're seeing. If you were to read through the whole thing, we go around the whole wall, and every time we hit a new section of the wall, there's somebody else, another family group, another guild, like the goldsmiths, the silversmiths. There'll be another um, place, like the, the people that were from Hassanaa. They'll be building together. And we see all these groups just take their part of the wall and they forge ahead and they're working on it and they're not worrying about what's going elsewhere in the wall, they're working on their portion. In verse 5, moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but, and this is the only but in this whole chapter about all these people who are engaged in what's going on. Tekoites are the people from Tekoa, Anybody know the prophet that was from Tekoa? Amos. Well done. It was. It was Amos. That's always scary because what if you say the wrong one? That's okay. Well, then what happens is I just pretend I didn't hear that one. Okay, so um, Amos, that's exactly right. And so um, these are the people from Amos's hometown, which is south of Jerusalem. And so they are doing their portion. And it says here, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters, meaning their um, master builders there. So the workmen came along. The people who are used to picking up a hammer, they came and they helped out, but the nobles refused. And they're the only ones. These nobles of Tekoa were the only ones who are recorded as refusing to help. And I wonder how many times that happens. These nobles were above that kind of work. Have you ever said, no, I'm not doing that kind of stuff? Or met somebody else who says that about some of the work of the Lord? Do you know that making the coffee is one of the things that we're looking for? We need people who are here early because we like our coffee. And if somebody doesn't come here early, we won't have our coffee. And I'm guessing that most don't even know who the people are who get up here early and make our coffee. Who gets here early and makes our coffee? I know who you are. Will you stand up? Yeah? Who are the early birds who get here and make our coffee? Are you guys asleep? Because <laughs> you're here so early. Yeah, Bill is. And where's Ian and Laura aren't here right now? Gary is the one who spearheads it. They're, in, they're on a two-week uh, anniversary vacation right now. And they're asking for somebody else to come and help. We need help. That seems like a simple job, but how many of us are going to be affected if they don't get here early <laughs> and make our coffee? Yeah, well, me and Kevin, anyway. <laughs> exactly. And so the Lord has said to come and help, and these nobles of Tekoa say, I'm not helping. And you know what? They never do. 
They never do come and help. Do you know that is possible? That you can say to the Lord, no, I'm not doing whatever it is that you've called me to do, and he has called you to something. And you can say, no, I'm not doing that. And you know who you're identified with? But. So the Lord called the people of Millerville Community Church to go and do this great work. But. Someone decided not to. And you know what? You could be that person that you just don't. And you're left out. And I don't want to be that person. I don't think you do either. And so um, the men of Tekoa do it. In fact, they're so good, these other men of Tekoa who do go and help out, that they do double duty. They're written about again in verse um, 26, I think it was. Was it 26? Did I get 28? 28. 28. 27. What do we got? What are we going with? Thank you. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. That's on the other side. So they're in two different places. Like there's so many of them that they could put them in two different spots to work away. And so when we go around this wall, all the way around, they are working away. Now down in the southeast section, that part is the part that's on the Kidron Valley. That's got, it's a very steep slope there. All along that whole east wall is a very steep slope and very difficult terrain. And to rebuild that took a lot of effort. And so there's a lot of focus right in that area in the south and, and southeast. There's a lot of focus. Plus, that's also where the old city of David is. Um, and that's where the tomb of David is and, and where a lot of the um, king's palace and so on and so forth is going up along that wall. So a lot of focus went there because that was in ruins but difficult to repair. And so a lot of effort had to go in there. And sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes there's some areas where, you know, it's just pretty quick for us to do the work of the kingdom in this area. But some, it takes a lot of people coming together to do this particular small task, it seems. It seems like a very short section of the wall, but it takes a lot of people to do it because it's very broken down. The Lord isn't interested in just fixing the big problems. The Lord works on everything, the entire wall. It's not just correcting some of the behaviors in our lives, behaviors in our church. It's actually turning us away from what's negative and towards what's good to him. And that takes, like sometimes getting away from this takes an awful lot of effort, but it's not over. We need to then turn and focus and love the Lord with all our heart and to love other people the same way, to love people fully and wholly. And so God is calling us to do that. And there are broken walls in our culture, and we know it full well. We are very aware of that. It's at an all-time high in our lifetime, and it's getting worse. And the signs are that it's not going to get any better unless somebody intervenes. And who's going to intervene? Our church. Our church. That's us. That's not one person. 
That's us doing it together to intervene in our culture. And are you going to be one of those people who joins? Or are you going to be one of the nobles of Tekoa that says, somebody else can do it. Somebody else can do it. I don't need to. They've got enough. Everybody was on board, even daughters. One of the guys, his, he, and his, he had daughters. So he and his daughters were fixing the wall. And so everybody's in. It's all hands on deck. And, um, you know, I thought about Ezra, who's a contemporary of Nehemiah, and thought, well, you know, why not Ezra? Why is, what's, like, how come this wall's a mess when Ezra's been there for quite a number of years now? So why is this a problem? Ezra's there, and he's a great guy. Well, you know what? Ezra, as I mentioned, was establishing the school of the scribes. He was establishing the teaching of the word of God. He had a task that God put on his heart, and he was doing it. And it says in Ezra that he purposed his heart to do the task that God had called him to. He did not get called to do Nehemiah's task. This is Nehemiah's task to organize everybody. And Nehemiah did not go around repairing the wall by himself. Nehemiah was one of those guys that he can just pull a gang together, motivate them, and they do it. And that's what he did for Jerusalem. That's what he did for Israel. That was the task that the Lord put on Nehemiah's plate by the Lord's strength. The Lord has given you a task. You might be one of those master builders of Tekoa. You might be one of those priests of the Levites. You might be one of those daughters. Who knows who you are? The Lord knows. You know. But we're all called to do the building of the wall. And so um, it wasn't Ezra's task, but he was called and he was there. And I'm, a ma I'm probably guessing that he was involved in part of the repairs as well, although he wasn't spearheading it. Um, everybody, it wasn't just Nehemiah, it was everybody. And the Lord is calling all of us. And Jesus says, as they looked at that, I think if I had looked at that, Sometimes I, <laughs> after a big storm, I think Carney looks at, we have trees and we heat our house with wood. And um, it's a lot of work to keep the forest floor clean, which is always a fire hazard, right? So you've got to keep the forest floor clean. You've got to clean up all that wood that is blown over. And I remember one year, Arnie had just spent all summer clearing up that forest floor. It was looking great. I mean, there was the whole other side of the slope that he hadn't touched, but I didn't mention that. And so there's this, all this part that he had done, huge amount of work. And we had this awful windstorm that night, and he went out and he counted another 100 trees down. And sometimes we look at a task and we go, this is impossible. I can't do this. It's too much. And I think if you and I had been in front of that wall in Nehemiah's day, before it started to be rebuilt, we'd look at that wall and say, there's no way. In fact, that's what they must have done because they'd been living there quite a few years. And they'd gone about their business and looked at that wall and said, too big, too much, can't do it. And the Lord says, we can, but not in our strength. The Lord Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Wow. 
That's a promise. That's a promise. And so um, they kept working around the wall. I want us to move us into um, Zechariah. And that was mentioned earlier um, by Mike about Zechariah. And um, he was one of the prophets during this time. So he's in the section um, right at the end of all the prophets in the Old Testament, or towards the end, not very end. And in chapter 4, I just want to read these two verses. Um, So Zerubbabel, remember, he was the one who built the temple that came prior to them rebuilding the walls. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, meaning the temple, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So he's, this is a prophecy saying, this is what's going to happen. That same generation, talking about Zerubbabel's generation, is going to finish the temple. Now, they got stopped a couple times, but they did finish it eventually. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this is the verse I want us to really look at. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad, and I'm not going to go into that. There's an explanation of that, but forget that for right now. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. So who has despised the day of small things. Have you? Have you said, oh, this is not significant? It's not a big deal? Coffee? Small job. Doesn't really matter. Do you know what? More ministry is done during coffee time than I think at any other time in our whole morning. Like so many people are caring for one another or getting to know each other or saying a friendly word to one another. Have you despised the day of small things? What small things is God doing in your life? Do you despise that? Or is that a time of rejoicing because God is in the small things? And he is using those everyday, ordinary incidents of our life to do amazing things through his power, through his spirit. And so we're not to despise the day of small things. We're not to see what we do in the kingdom of God as being insignificant. Turn to Hebrews 6, verse 10. And here we see um, in this verse, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. The Lord sees it. And he does not forget it, and it does matter to him. And I just want us to look at Psalm 119. And uh, David wrote this. Right in the middle of, of, like Psalm 119 is the big long psalm in the scripture. And David, um, in writing that whole section, 33 to 40, is, um, oh, I just very much recommend that you read that when you go home. But uh, I just want to look at verse 37. 
turn away my eyes from looking at, it says vanity there, the word means meaninglessness. So turn away my eyes from looking at meaninglessness and revive me in thy ways. Meaninglessness is when we look at our lives and say, it's not without, it's, you know, it doesn't have any meaning. It didn't count for anything. wasn't significant. Nobody kn knew anything that I did. I'm a no-name in the world. And in fact, I'm even a no-name in the groups that I hang out with. I'm sort of in the background. And David says, don't look at your life like that. Instead, he says, revive me in thy ways. Turn my eyes on you and revive me in your ways. How do we know what God is doing? What is his way of doing things? Well, how do you know? But if you turn your eyes on the Lord, then, then, and only then, does our life become significant. It's actually all the significance that we think we can do in the world, like these rock stars that we see that are about themselves, and everybody knows who they are, it's meaningless, actually. That's meaningless. But as we turn our eyes on God, as we revive ourselves in his ways, then even the most insignificant things that we do, if our eyes are on the Lord, that has meaning. That has significance, and it matters. And that's our lives. That's the life that we're called to. That's the life of the saints. And that's what we are called to, is to know God's ways. And I just think of, um, we talked about the Messianic Psalm at the beginning, Psalm 89. I want to come back to it. Because it would seem, like this, this psalm, think about all the things that we read about the walls. That really is what's being said on the cross. Jesus looks deserted by the Father. Jesus looks like a failure on the cross. Jesus, they thought, had the power to do anything. He healed all these other people. How come he can't do anything about his situation? Why is he hanging on the cross? And we know, because scripture records it, that passers-by, just like passers-by of Jerusalem, passers-by of the cross spit on the cross because, pfft, what is he? He said he was so great, and there he is. He said he was the son of God. <laughs> I guess we see that he's not, because he wouldn't be on the cross if he were the son of God. We'd all be forced to worship him. And Jesus is on the cross, and he actually died on that cross. He didn't sort of pow and miraculously jump off the cross and everything was good. He stayed there, and he died. And it looked like all those people who mocked him were right. And he was put in the grave. He was put in the tomb and it was sealed, and it was over. Or was it? If the story stopped there, then yes, indeed, it stops with the grave. But the account of the cross doesn't stop at the grave. Three days later, we have the resurrection. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, not by any man's power, but by the power of God himself. And it's that same 
power of God that turns anything that we do that's insignificant, unimportant, it's that same power that changes the very ordinary into something that is extraordinary for the kingdom. And that's what God is calling us to do. That's what Nehemiah did. It's what Ezra did. It's what David did. It's what Jesus did. And that's what he's calling us to. And if you don't know that power, if you don't know what it is to experience the resurrection power of Jesus and what he has done to fix that brokenness that I know is in all of us, then you need to. And it can be today. And I would pray that you would spend time with a friend here that knows the Lord or with Pastor John or with me or with any of the others who know the Lord to spend some time and just say, I have that brokenness and I want the power of Jesus Christ to change that because he can do that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for you are great and awesome. You are a powerful God. And we praise you and thank you that by your power that you take our broken lives and you turn them into something that's significant, significant for your kingdom, not for our glory, but for your glory. And we praise you and thank you that these promises are sure. And just like the wall of Jerusalem was built back up so you can break take these broken walls that we have in our culture and build them back up by the power of your name through your people. And we pray that you would use us in that rebuilding. So Lord, um, would you be with us now as we go forth and would we have our focus, Lord, on you and our love directed toward you. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jeremy's going to come and, and give the benediction, so I'd ask you all to stand. Whenever I am challenged to, uh, to think about the tasks that I'm involved in and the ways that I'm involved in uh, building the kingdom, um, I feel this strong urge to remind myself that I cannot do that in my strength. And so with that, I want to read you this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.